much of what we see is a mental health, our mental health issues. And what we really need to invest in is people as a whole, not just their bodies. We spend a lot of time going to the gym and working out, but we don't always work out our minds. Not much, but it's, it's a discussion in Congress about whether or not we should have insurance for mental illness. Because some people say, well, this is just part of life. Why do we got to have insurance of that? At the same time, part of life is getting from home to work, and we don't mind having insurance for our cars. Well, I think you got where I was going, which is this is a global issue. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. You know, in the veterinary profession, we did some interviews this week, and a number of the questions of the prospective students were, what resources are available on campus to help with the mental health challenges during the four years academically? They were given the chance to ask us questions about the, the veterinary experience. Three out of the six that we interviewed this time had questions about the, the resources for mental health at the university while going through the veterinary curriculum. And so we, we talked about that. And, and we've been talking more and more about that within the veterinary schools, and we're talking more and more about that within the veterinary profession and the challenges that the professionals deal with from a mental health standpoint. And, you know, resilience is somewhat of an ability to deal with some of these challenges, but then concurrently providing resources to help maybe people identify the coping skills that they need or having resources to help deal with these things. So, you know, resilience is, is the ability to deal with these different challenges and, and bounce back. And um, it is interesting that it's becoming more and more commonplace now than maybe it was when we were in school. Maybe it was 10, even 10 or 15 years ago. So I, I think what we're seeing it globally, and I don't think this is just in the veterinary profession, I do think that we're starting to see some challenges to the resilience of the population. I don't know what it is, but do you get that same feeling that that we're seeing more and more people who are who maybe just don't seem to have the resilience? And I don't mean veterinary specific. I mean globally. Uh, I think resiliency is changing. Okay. Okay. Um, I know what you're trying to get at, and I'm not going to. I. I'm resistant to to claiming or characterizing the new generations as being spoiled or 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 lack the temerity to meet the challenges of the future. First of all, it it's a it's a false premise to compare what we went through with what they're going through. You know, you and I have had plenty of discussions about when will when will certain things change and i think you know i i think sometimes we don't recognize change until it has happened uh, i think sometimes we don't recognize when change is changing because we're looking for a particular outcome and it and that progression to that outcome is not recognizable 
until we get there, things haven't changed, right? And yet, if we're not where we were, things have changed. We may not be satisfied with the degree of change, but uh, it doesn't mean that we're not progressing toward it. And so I think from a generational standpoint, we may be looking at the things that we had to overcome that we tackled while we were progressing through society. And now those things are no longer ever present for this generation. And we think they are now pampered. Well, they have, I'm sure those challenges were replaced by others. It's the same as first and third world problems. I was watching uh, a replay of West Wing. There was an episode where they were talking about the Clean Water Act that was passed in 1890. And it suddenly became a pivotal moment for me when my hometown in Jackson, Mississippi, just had a national recognition of a problem with clean water. Even the examples that we may be using uh, to support resilience will change by generation. You know, you were talking about the, the, the question about resources on a given campus, et cetera. I remember when I was in Tuskegee, well, frankly, uh, one of the decisions I had to make early, early, in my academic career was where, where was I going to go to college? I had received a, a half scholarship from Harvard, a half scholarship from Yale, a full scholarship from Jackson State. I came from a family that was in the upper crust of the lower class. And my father could not afford to pay the other half of the Yale scholarship or the Harvard scholarship. I wasn't secure enough in my own ego to think that I could get a job and survive the demands of a Yale or a Harvard. And one day I was walking across campus in Jackson State and I looked at the library and I realized there was no way I was going to read all the books in the library of Jackson State. And I naively thought the books in Jackson State are the same books that are in the libraries at Harvard and, and Yale. And it's not about the school I go to. It's about how much I avail myself of those books. It's up to me. And so I decided not to take a chance and to go where I had a full scholarship so that I could focus on learning. When I got to Tuskegee, I went to a limited resource institution. And that same library, I realized, was not the same as the library at Davis. It was not the same as the resources that were available at Cornell. And yet it was more than I could take in in four years if I applied myself. Those differences have been mitigated by technology now. It does, that library is no longer a physical library. And I'm a little surprised at the question that was asked by these students because of that, because they're digital natives. On the other hand, if these students are coming from an upper or lower crust of the lower class, they may not have had homes where Wi-Fi was ubiquitous. And 
local resources are still critical for them. And that's the problem we have in trying to evaluate their resilience. So what can we do globally? Let's talk university level, then we can talk practice and world. What can we do to help toughen up, strengthen the resilience for those who may not be quite as resilient on that objective scale? Is, I mean, are there things that we can help teach? Is there some self-awareness that we can provide? Is there something that we can do to help people push through and, and become tougher and more resilient as a result? And, and this is, and this is a, a real question because I do believe that we can cultivate and improve resilience. And, and I think some of, in, in my experience, getting rejected from veterinary school a couple of different times that gave me a, a real reality check. And I think I needed that. And I think that uh, challenges I had when running my business was a real reality check. And, and yeah, there were times that I was burned out. I went back to school and got an MBA because I was burned out looking for a different route, a different way to find answers. So that was my ability to cope or my ability to pivot, my ability to change. What can we do to help the current world become more resilient, recognizing that life is not going to get any easier. Now the conversation has, come, has gone from what is resilience and do we right. recognize it to how can we make people more resilient? And I yeah. don't understand how you can do that when you don't really know what you're looking at or what you're looking for. Okay. And so once again, I would advise that we don't focus on resiliency the, the way we over-focused on grades, that we understand that resiliency is is one characteristic that is self-developed through the experiences that they have. I, I'm not sure I want to develop a program that does that. What I want to develop is a, a culture and environment that supports the individual while they are developing their skills of resiliency that we recognize. And I, and I believe that in education, we, we are recognizing this. In the work environment, we are recognizing the need for that type of support. And the answer is actually individual. The answer is we provide them the needs they need when they need it. And that we must have the resources to be flexible in order to provide those type that type of support. We're talking about mental wellness here. We're talking about recognizing that people are going to have sleepless nights. That doesn't require intervention. That just requires sleep. But we also need to recognize that some people might not respond appropriately to those sleepless nights. They may, ex or, or they may get tied up into a, a series of challenges that causes them to have a cascade of wrong decisions that results in short-term mental illness. Whether that short-term mental illness becomes long-term depends on, the, on our ability to provide assistance when, when needed, when it can be effective. So what we can do is have the resources to do that. And what we do in education is the moment a student comes in comes into our classes, we provide them an advisor, whether they're going to like them or not. 
because we want somebody there to say, this isn't that bad. I know how hard it is to get the gas on in, in Pomona. I know how hard it is to uh, navigate the DMV for your uh, California license uh, or to turn on electricity or to find an apartment. We can help you with that if you're having trouble here, right? But those challenges change. Uh, and at the same time, we try to do it without mitigating the independence of the young adult. And we don't tell them to come to us for everything. Hopefully when they come to us, it's something we can help them with. And if we can't, we'll find somebody who can. When I was in vet school, I had several people who lived in their cars and nobody cared. Nobody did any, they lived in their car until they could find an apartment, you know? And I know some people that finally found not an apartment, but a bedroom in somebody's house because there were people in Tuskegee who worked at Tuskegee, retired, et cetera, and were aware that there were people who wanted education enough that they came to Tuskegee with just enough money to pay their tuition. And they didn't know where their money was coming from for, for, for breakfast on the first day of class. They didn't know how they were going to buy the books they needed. And so they, they studied in the library until the library closed. And then they had to find a place to sleep. There was no place to study after that because there were no lights for them to study by. Those are the kind of things that we have recognized now. Now we offer food pantries on campus for students who don't want to tell us they're having problems keeping up with their nutrition because they can't focus. They can't respond. So, so and in, but in, in providing those resources, they develop resilient characteristics. They clearly have the persistence. They, they surely have the desire. And clearly they have the characteristics to be a vet school because we accepted them. But we have to learn to be compassionate enough to handle circumstances that we may not totally be aware of. So let, let's take a look at the veterinary profession globally, and, and maybe it's a, a measure of the world around us as well. Are there some things that people in the business world, people in the healthcare field can do for themselves to help deal with the environmental things that are impacting them, that are that might be pulling their resilience down or sucking some of their some of their resilience out? I mean, are there things that business owners could do for their for their teams to help them deal with compassion fatigue in our profession or abusive clients. I mean, I think it's it's how you handle these external environmental factors. And, and we keep talking about this within the veterinary field and, and how do we deal with these variables that won't impact our satisfaction within the profession? Because I think we're dealing with some satisfaction issues that are probably due to uh, maybe a lack of mindfulness, maybe not taking care of ourselves, maybe whatever the case may be. But this is a, an issue that extends beyond veterinary school into life in the profession. What more can we do to help our professionals once they're out of school, you know, be better prepared to deal with the unhappy clients or difficult staff or whatever the case may be? Yeah, well, see, I believe your question is muddled. That's okay. Good. And I understand it. Uh, I understand why it's muddled. It's because th the problem with the American dream is that a, a lot of it is based on denial. 
the, the, the American dream essentially says that you can come in and be what you want. You can achieve what you want to achieve. And it does not account for basic human deficits of character. And we all have all of them. And they all express at different times differently. And we won't admit it. Our successful people are people who are able to hide it or overcome it secretly. So much so that everybody's ashamed to admit that I, I, couldn't, I didn't sleep well last night. Or I missed 10 questions on the test and I can't tell anybody. Or somebody's exuberant about having a 93 and I made an 82 and I'm not and and I'm just going to fold my paper and say, whew, I'm at least I passed. And at the same time, you want to solve business problems. Problems are problems. And I'm not quite sure that you that they should be intertwined with the challenges we have of being healthy. And I also don't think we should balkanize the approach by saying, how do we handle this for professions, for health professions, not just professionals, health professions, when it's a human trait. If you want to help health professions, let's help human beings. You know, if you want to help help health professions, then let's make sure that we understand that as a society, mental wellness is as important as nutrition of that society. And in doing that, we can identify, the first thing is you were rambling about what the problems were that we that caused you to ask the questions. And that's because we don't really know what affects mental health. So we really need to do a better job of identifying the basis for happiness, the basis for our satisfaction, whether we are a veterinarian, a podiatrist, a plumber, an electrician, it doesn't matter what our profession is. What matters is that we're human beings and we, and this is the one part, particularly in the United States, that we have been reluctant to deal with. This is a discussion in Congress, not much, but it is, it's a discussion in Congress about whether or not we should have insurance for mental illness. Because some people say, well, this is just part of life. Why do we got to have insurance of that? At the same time, part of life is getting from home to work, and we don't mind having insurance for our cars. Well, I think you got where I was going, which is this is a global issue, and it's a bigger issue than just the veterinary profession, and it's it's an issue that much, much of what we see with respect to homelessness, much of what we see is a mental health, our mental health issues, and what we really need to invest in is people as a whole, not just their bodies. We spend a lot of time going to the gym and working out, but we don't always work out our minds and we don't always take care of our minds as well. So I think what allows us to physically spring back when knocked down is different than what allows us to mentally spring back when we're knocked down. And we are very good at, at going and working out or running or cycling or even playing golf. Is that a physical sport? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, no, you're not, but that, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but we really don't spend as much time as we need to on mental needs. But I, I do think that it, it does reflect that we, in whatever our roles are in society, need to be sensitive to 
our physical bodies, but we need to be sensitive to the mental component of our bodies even more because they are not as resilient. They are not as flexible. And in many cases, they're not as tough. And so I think that that being sensitive to that at all levels and being aware of it and not ignoring it, not poo-pooing it as being something that, well, it's their problem. This is a global problem. This is a global issue. And I really do think that that just having this conversation on resilience went full circle to where I wanted it to get, which is we need to be aware of it. We need to be sensitive to it. We need to take care of ourselves and we need to help others as well. And I would also like to uh, com complete the circle by saying that we spent a lot of time on the developing adult, but there's also an ignorance and a denial that successful people or people who have nearly completed their trek through life, like you and I, also continue to have challenges of resilience and continue to have mental health needs that we are poorly addressing. And so there is this sense, there is this narrative that once you've made it, you're good. Once you've acquired the resources to handle your nutritional needs, your security needs, your housing needs, and more, you're good. Why would you have any problems? as if you have no other human relationships. I think this a lot of this goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You recognize that, huh? Yeah, I do. I, I learned about that sometime along. <laughs> but, you know, maybe we don't teach that enough. Or effectively. At all. Well, no, we do teach it, yes. Do we teach it? When and where do we teach it? Uh, I do know that that is... Um, that is taught in our course, in our uh, Vet Issues course. Okay. I also know that it comes out in other spots throughout, spontaneously throughout. Uh, but when I say effectively, just because we show a slide of the triangle doesn't necessarily mean that we're getting through at the time or we've applied it appropriately. I do believe that, as you said, even the exposure to the to human needs, to basic human needs and how we make our decisions, how the caveman had to make his decisions and how that hasn't changed for, you know, in our progressive society, pro technologically progressive society is is important. I would love to post a question on during the interview process or before that asks applicants have you ever heard of the hierarchy of needs i'm glad you would love to do that my question is to what end just to get a feeling for the awareness of individuals about more global needs than just getting through the day i think some people are just so focused on getting through the day that they're not really that visionary down the road that that raises two responses for me the first is is that um I get it, you know, that, you, you know, it, it might give you some sense of the psychological development of our applicants, right? But on the other hand, that's why we moved away from just grades and the evaluation of the human being is, is because we're not, we don't want automatons to become graduates. And whether they know Maslow's theory 
or whether Maslow's theory is represented in the class that we that we accept are two different approaches. Does everybody have to be aware of Maslow's theory at the time that they apply? Or do we mix people who have different a different set of characteristics so that they can learn from each other? Because that's what society is. The second point is, you remind me of when we first introduced our curriculum and a lot of veterinarians felt like they didn't like it because I had one person who said they don't know what salmon fever is. They can't practice in the Northwest if they don't know what salmon fever is. I don't see that anywhere in your curriculum. Then you have others who say, where are you teaching rabies? It's kind of like you say, where, where is Maslow's theory taught? And we get focused on these, on these ever important issues to us and then decide this is necessary to become a veterinarian. And my response to that is, what about the disease we don't know about that's going to be important, like COVID? My most intensive source of pride right now as a human being is that we were number first able to recognize COVID and second, respond to it on a scientific basis. And we were able to take our knowledge across the board and apply it in a public health setting. My most intense source of distress is that we politicized it. But we should be preparing students, resiliency or otherwise, for what they don't know. You know, that that's a great concept. And I think it's it's very difficult to convince somebody who has been through the curriculum already that we should be teaching the students what they don't know. Can't teach that. You prepare them for right. for on, on how to approach that. Correct. And I think that one of the things that Western does better than many of the other veterinary schools is teach students how to find answers because. I think way too often, I remember from my education, it was tube feeding and regurgitation. Whereas I think the ability to go and learn how to catch a fish, cook a fish, and eat a fish will prepare you much better than just opening a can of sardines. I just want to make sure that we note the, the religious comment. <laughs> <laughs> about the person who just used a Christian parable. To... <laughs> hey, it just shows how open-minded I am about the world around me and how knowledgeable I am from having hung out with you and the resilience that I have from spending the last hour or so with you. So... I must admit that I am very impressed with your openness and your willing, your, your passion for self-improvement. My uh, caustic humor aside, I... <laughs> <laughs> So you obviously understand what the lowest portion of Maslow's uh, pyramid is, right? Yeah, do you? Yeah. What is it? Physiological needs. Right. And you know what happens right around now after our conversations? Yeah, it sounds like to me you're ready for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, there's that and other physiological needs <laughs> that happen from coffee, too. <laughs> I was trying to be nice, but okay. <laughs> so, you know, if we do, just as we try to wrap it up, if you look at the the hierarchy, uh, and we, we've kind of talked about a little bit of it with resilience today, of physiological needs, safety, social needs, I think we've kind of touched on that as well, esteem, and, and, and I think the um, recognition of, of self-confidence is very much a part of resilience as well. And then finally, self-fulfillment. 
and self-actualization. And I really do think that if you can get to that top of the pyramid and you have those, that feeling of accomplishment and self-fulfillment, um, I think that that's one of the, the true things that helps you from a resilience standpoint. So in, in many ways, moving up through Maslow's hierarchy and any other similar type of psychological assessment of needs and psychological health can be very helpful dealing with the challenges that we face each day and every day. Yeah, I agree. It's been a, a wonderful conversation, Peter, and uh, thanks for pushing the envelope and directing the conversation. Well, I want to thank uh, thank Nationwide again for their support in allowing us to go off into all sorts of different tangential conversations. But I do think this discussion of resilience is one that uh, it should not go away and, and should be part of what we look at in ourselves and when we look at others. And so I appreciate you going along for the ride with me, Phil, and to all our listeners, thank you for going for going along for the ride with us as well. See you next time, Phil. See you next time, Peter, and I hope I see our listeners next time, too. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.